0: Warning, this episode contains strong language.
1: The problem is basically, uh, that was a pretty local story uh, in Missouri until the football team decided to publicly announce their intention to, to strike unless my boss stepped down. Yeah. And he did so within a couple of days of that. So uh, that's what really happened. You know, my departure from the chancellorship was not connected to the racial uh, discussions on campus at the time directly at all. Uh, that's something you would know if you were locally there. Sure. Uh, see that in the natural media and the things you probably saw when you Googled, Googled my name out there. Uh, but the, what really, uh, I'll say this, uh, Ferguson was a catalyst and it wasn't just Ferguson itself. Uh, what was more telling was the... Uh, day in which the grand jury decision not to indict the police officer that shot uh, Michael Brown. When that was announced, that really was uh, the beginning, if you will, of of much uh, conversation and much anxiety on the campus of Columbia, Missouri.
0: Welcome to the Lone Star Play podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Scott Armstrong. Join me and a famous guest every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We discuss their career, life, food, texas and everything in between let's get started all right guys welcome to another episode of the lone star play podcast i'm your host patrick scott armstrong okay welcome to yes another great episode right um my guest today is r bowen lofton um he is the former chancellor at the University of Missouri, and he was the 24th president at Texas A&M University. Um, so we got a great chance to talk to him. Uh, he was uh, born and raised here in Texas, so we talked to him about that growing up in Texas. Um, his stint at Texas A&M, where he still resides um, and still works with the university in, in, a, in some capacity. Um, so we talked to him about that. We also talked to him about his experience at uh, the University of Missouri and, um, you know, being the chancellor there. Um, obviously, you heard in the clip, you know, he was there during a pretty crazy time um, after everything that happened in Ferguson and it carried over to the school. And, um, yeah, he had to resign and, and he kind of went over that, that whole situation that was, you know, all in the national media. Uh, we also spoke a little bit about what happened at Texas A&M as well. Um, so yeah, this was, this was a great episode. Um, he was really open and honest and um, just a great guy. Just had a really good conversation um, about all of this stuff. So, um, you know, please, you're, you're going to enjoy it, all right? So again, don't, don't forget, uh, before we get to the episode, let's talk about social media, okay? So make sure to follow us online. And as always, check out our website, LoneStarPlate.com. All right. And don't forget, leave us a review, please. We, we like that stuff. Um, that would be great. All right. So, okay. Um, bu, 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 bu. What's next? Yeah, the episode, right? That's it. What, what else are we going to do here? So let's just get to it. R. Bowen Lofton. Great episode. Enjoy. Thank you uh, for joining us today. I'm excited to talk to you a little bit about growing up in Texas and, and what that was like and Uh, some of the things that have happened in your life. So, again, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here. Awesome. Well, look, let's start there. Let's start with um, where where exactly you grew up in Texas.
1: I grew up about 25 miles south of where I'm sitting right now, a small town named Navasota. Uh, I was born, actually, just north of here in a town called Hearn, uh, but that was a one-day residence. And uh, at age one day I moved to my uh, growing up place in Navasota.
0: Nice and so how exactly did you end up at, um, at uh, A&M? What, what made you not want to go out of state? Did you love <laughs> so much you were like I, I got to stay in Texas?
1: Well many factors. Uh, we had no money when I was growing up so uh, <laughs> travel was very rare. Uh, I traveled basically to see relatives within the state, like uh, couple of excursions out of the state in uh, growing up where one was a brief trip to New Mexico to a place called Carlsbad Caverns, and another few times I went across the border uh, down in Eagle Pass or Del Rio. Uh, so those were my travel experiences growing up, so I had no real experience living out out of Texas at all. Uh, So staying in the state was important. Uh, When I was in high school, I applied to only three universities. Uh, One was Texas A&M, one was University of Texas at Austin, and the third was Rice University. Uh, All three uh, wrote back to me, no email in those days, (laughs) said uh, you're admitted. Uh, They continued and said uh, you were going to be given a tuition scholarship. And I was ecstatic because, again, uh, I was in a family with just no no, mo- no money, basically. Yeah. I had worked for a small hourly uh, wage. Um, my mom didn't work until I was probably midway through high school. She worked also for an hourly wage, so we really had very little money uh, to spare. And so even though it wasn't as expensive then as it is now to go to college, it was still a, a consideration. Uh I was ecstatic until I began looking at the literature they sent me and realized that tuition wasn't the only cost. <laughs> uh, that, that gave me pause. And I told my father, I said, uh, you know, Dad, I better just go ahead and get a job after high school and earn some money and save it, uh, live at home, do what I can to reduce expenses, and then I can afford maybe to go to, go to college in the following year. And he wasn't happy about that. Those days, we didn't have the guaranteed student loans that are available today. There was just no way to make it happen. But uh, Magical took place. Uh, in March of 1967, I got a, a second letter from Texas a and saying that one of uh, its graduates, a, a former student, had recently passed away and left money and uh, an endowment to fund a scholarship for someone just like me. Oh, wow. Uh, a tuition-only scholarship and having a, actually a full-ride scholarship. But wow, that made my choice of schools extremely. <laughs> yeah,
0: you're like, uh, which one do I go to? Oh, the one giving me money. Let me go to this one. Uh, yeah, we all understand that
1: today. I think. Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, I would a hundred percent. You know, completely. I know. Remember, I
1: mean, I, I grew up close to here. I grew up a few miles away from here, and so I knew this place pretty well. I've been on campus a number of times and uh, through my schooling and in public schools in Minnesota because events were here occasionally. I've been to a few sporting events here when I could find the dollars to do that. So this place wasn't strange to me. I uh, had a great visit at Rice in Houston, uh, but again, uh, expensive, even with a tuition scholarship, uh, expensive place to be. Went to Austin uh, to visit the University of Texas Austin there. I'll never forget walking into the uh, admissions receiving place there, uh, which they directed me to when I asked about a campus tour. And I walked in there and said, I'm here for a campus tour." And the person behind the counter never even looked up. Uh, They handed me a little folded map and said, "Uh, here's a map of the campus. Good luck. (laughs) uh, That was was the uh, introduction I had to that university. I did spend uh, the day walking around the campus. It wasn't a very big campus compared to Texas A&M's. But no one ever spoke to me. No one really uh, offered to help me. Uh, which was not what I'd seen at places like Texas A and M or at Rice, and so it was a somewhat different welcoming, shall we say, that I had. Here.
0: Yeah, I get it completely. That's probably the best way to figure out, you know, what school you want to you just take a walk through, see what what sort of reactions you get, right? Like how people. Well, walking
1: through it's important, but the most important thing of all is having someone take you on a walk sure. going sure. to school there. Someone about your own age who's gone through the same processes you've gone through and thinking about where to go to school, why to go to school at a certain location, and get get frank answers to your question. Get a sense of who they are, why they're there, uh, and what really drew them to this campus compared to some other place they might have gone to. That's what I saw here at Texas A&M when I was uh, working on campus was uh, every day I would see uh, people do that, both in organized ways and unorganized ways. Common A&M is if you're walking around with a map in your hands or looking a little lost, someone's going to stop very quickly and say, can I help you? And they yes. want to give you directions. They'll actually take you where you want to go, even out of their way. Uh, that's not a common occurrence that you go across many campuses as I have in my, my career and see sort of the cultural differences between those campuses. Oh,
0: that's interesting. Yeah, I remember going to um... – back in like 2000, you know, 99, 2000, 2001, I would, I grew up in the Dallas area. I still live there at that time. I would drive down to College Station to visit my friends. You know, we had just recently graduated high school. So everyone's uh, going to, a lot of, a lot of them went to A&M. Um, a great campus. You're right. I always had good times there. Always, uh, it was always a friendly place to go and very different. It, it was just very, um, I guess we consider it, you know, agricultural. So it was more rustic more cowboy more that's how i looked at it going down there to that school um as opposed to i don't know ut or north texas or something even there in dallas uh but it's still all texas at the at the end of the day um but uh you know i'm curious uh, you, you mentioned both of the the schools a&m and, and texas what what other differences do you feel like or between those schools, like, and because th- there's such a rivalry, obviously, uh, between the schools? Well, there certainly has been
1: <laughs> <laughs> in the last several years, and I've been blamed for that. But uh, just a couple of things I'll observe, and I'm, I'm not trying to disparage uh, anybody here. But, uh, I think you you find a different feel for the campuses. You mentioned agriculture, uh, that's uh, a big thing at AM, but not the biggest thing by any means. Engineering is by far the largest college uh, within Texas a and University's boundaries. Uh, they're moving moving towards 25,000 students by 2025 is the goal that the Dean uh, has set for them. Uh, Ag is a big school here, but by no means the, the largest college that we have. Uh, historically, uh, this is a land grant institution. The oral Act that was signed by Lincoln in 1863 Uh, created a mechanism to allow these kinds of schools to exist. Prior to then, uh, almost all the universities in the country, uh, in the world, for that matter, were private. Uh, They just catered to those who could afford to go there. And that meant uh, only a certain type of person could really attend a university uh, back in the 19th century. Uh, The Moral Act changed all that. uh, And it created these schools that were supposed to train people, educate them in... Useful arts <laughs> and that meant agriculture, engineering. Uh, also, there was uh, a piece of it which said military training and service was part of that as well. Not uh, just Texas AM, which has a, a famous and well known Corps of Cadets, but uh, every land grant school at one point in history uh, had these young men in uniforms marching around the campus uh, getting trained in military arts uh, while they were going to school. That was part of the moral act that sort of died away in the 20th century. Uh, when I was at Mizzou, uh, there were pictures I was given there which showed uh, ranks of young men dressed in uniform on the main quadrangle of the campus uh, in the 1800s. which was a common thing. Uh, Texas A&M is one of the schools that sort of kept that alive, perhaps more so than most schools of its nature have. But every state has one or more land grant schools. They have become the backbone in many respects of public education. Uh, in the United States, and an example for many, but UT didn't didn't start that way. Basically, they they started a different kind of way, uh, and they focused a lot on liberal arts. That was a major part of their their focus going. Through. You had different kinds of choices here, and based on who you were, were you coming from an urban place like Dallas, or were you coming from a, a place like I came from, where farming and ranching were the norms? Uh, so your your choice was based on comfort based on what your parents did uh, for a living uh, based on your own aspirations which are shaped by where you grew up oftentimes so it's not surprising that the UT system uh, primarily has its campuses in urban settings yeah the AM system has its campuses primarily not all but primarily uh, in rural or small town settings I mean college station when this place was started was a single building uh, a railroad station that's all there was here and it was Five miles to the nearest town, which was Bryan, Texas. What year was that? What, what, what year was that? 1876 is the wow. beginning of this university. The first class came here in October of 1876. Uh, and so basically that sort of, you, you got off the train, what did you see? Prairie. That's you saw. If it was raining, you got muddy. Uh, the first uh, dorms were tents. Uh, Those are the sort of things we live with here. I mean, there were frequent fires because at that time, heating and light was provided by fire, not by lamps. And so buildings burned down. We had several major fires here on campus early in its life, and students oftentimes were forced to live uh, in tents because no place else existed. And it was a five-mile trek or a short train ride to get to the nearest civilization, which was Bryan, Texas, five miles uh, north of the campus. It's stark, uh, but that wasn't unusual. Go to Blacksburg, Virginia, and look at Virginia Tech. It's in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. And you have the same kind of feeling uh, in terms of the nature of the location there, as you would see here at Texas A&M. So again, different things here. Uh, just very different sorts of cultural settings here. Uh, one example, this is a very churched town. Uh, most people here belong to a church of some type. <laughs> same for the students. Don't find that quite the same way in Austin, Texas. Again, I'm not disparaging anybody here. I'm just saying it's just different. Yeah. Uh, there's a Bible study uh, every Tuesday night here at Texas A&M in the, in the basketball arena. And up to 10,000 students attend that. Uh, you don't see that many places. Wow. So you can understand why That's incredible. a certain kind of background would prefer their child come here and not someplace else. Uh, it's not surprising. So I'm not, again, trying to make it look like it's better or worse. It's just different. And I think difference is an attractor for many people. Uh, the campus is keeping its, keeping its growth pattern intact. Uh, when I was here as president, we crossed 50,000 students. Uh, now there are around 70,000 students. They aren't all right here. There are a few pieces of a and elsewhere, but it gives you a sense of scale. Uh, it's a big university, uh, the biggest certainly in Texas in terms of student population. It's got a lot of land, the the main campus is over 5,000 acres. There is a satellite campus called the Rellis campus not too far from here in Bryan, which is over 6,000 acres. So lots of land, uh, lots of space. When I was here as a student, uh, we lived on what's called the East Campus, east of the railroad track that bisects the campus. Uh, uh, Now you have huge amounts of stuff on the west side of those tracks. Uh, in my day, the only thing over here was pig farms and the best school <laughs> and that 's changed that uh, since, since those days I was a student here at texas am
0: wow that 's incredible yeah you 've seen you 've seen the changes more than more than anybody uh, you know that's yeah that 's incredible um, yeah gosh that 's you know it 's crazy how much you know schools change and they start to grow and you know i 'm curious if you know where, where are you at ex- Exactly right now. You're, you're down there
1: at the school? Yes, yeah, so I, I retired uh, last year when I was in Missouri. Uh, we always plan to come back here. This is home turf, if you yep. will, a place with many friends and many great memories. So we purchased a house here back in January of, of, uh, of 2018, not knowing when I would retire exactly. I chose to retire uh, September 1 of last year and we're back here in, in October, moved back here uh, permanently. So uh, this always was our target to be a retirement place and uh, it's reality now for us. So I I'm, I'm sitting literally in Bryan Texas on the very northern edge of it basically. Uh, uh, if I if I climb a tree outside my house I can see uh, Kyle Field the football stadium easily from here.
0: <laughs> if you climb a tree I love that that's hilarious. Uh, well I'm down, I'm in Austin so you know yeah not not far at all. Um that's great I didn't know where you are. People you know they might be, but you know, somewhere normally. But because of the pandemic, you know, I'll talk to them, and they're you know staying with family here or there or, or wherever. So um, uh, that's great that you're able to uh, you know stay here in Texas. How's it been uh, for you? Have you been in Texas the whole time during the pandemic? Have you? Has this been? Yes, we were here
1: certainly. I mean, the biggest difference is simply uh, mobility is is challenging now. Getting where you want to go. We had planned on having uh, a great time in Aggie sports. Uh, we enjoyed about a dozen games, baseball and softball, uh, before things changed. Uh, we were just starting conference play uh, and it ended. And totally. So, and men, it's been a more boring, perhaps than you might want it to be, uh, with less things to do. For a while, restaurants were closed. Uh, that, that's not quite true now. We have restaurants open with reduced capacity, certainly in the area. So we eat out maybe once a week, something like that. We uh, have very, we, we say together, my wife and I, horse all the time but uh, she rides a horse most every day so she goes off to her barn and, and rides a horse for a while that's her enjoyment and, and, and training. Uh, I stay here at the house or go to meetings by Zoom or sometimes physically uh, I'm trying to write a few things and uh, that keeps me busy. I'm involved with Zoom calls usually a few times a day like this one so this is common as well. Uh, so I mostly work on the office where I am right now uh, it's a, a comfortable place to be. We're very happy here right now. Just missing uh, the attributes of a completely open environment that we intended to come back to here. Sure.
0: Uh, I have
1: no doubt in my mind that we're going to get past all of this ultimately, and uh, we'll have life uh, not totally back to where it once was. At least somewhat more normal than it's been for a while.
0: Where, where are things at uh, at the school right now with, with everything classes? Oh and...
1: uh, they reopened. Uh, they, op- they opened up uh, the campus uh, about a week earlier than normally would be the case. Um, enrollment here is up, I think, over last year, so that's uh, Wow. datum. Uh,
0: okay. That's uh, interesting. Students
1: are, are taking a lot of online courses. I taught a class yesterday, for example, as just a guest lecturer uh, one, one time this class. Uh, on campus. I had perhaps uh, three quarters of the class was in front of me and one quarter was on Zoom, uh, interacting that way. Other classes are almost totally online as far as the uh, lecture part of the course is concerned. Uh, laboratories are largely in person, but some of those actually are virtual uh, as well, but most of those are in, in person. So every student you talk to here will probably be doing a sort of a hybrid circumstance. They'll be in class a lot yeah. uh, by Zoom. Uh, they'll yeah. also be going to certain classes or going to certain laboratories during the course of the week for in-person type experiences. Uh, the case it's, a is well over 1,000, uh, which is you, not surprising given the size of the campus.
0: Do you think that's the future? Like, do you think that, that it'll kind of be a hybrid moving forward, you know, sort of thing?
1: It's hard to go back again. I mean, for example, uh, so sort of rolling out of bed and getting dressed and going to class at 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, a student can kind of roll over, grab their laptop, uh, <laughs> and go to class right there. That's a hard thing to compete with. <laughs> I mean, I mean you're, you're, pretty, you're a pretty young guy. You appreciate sure how it is. I mean, students, really, their lives are, are somewhat offset from mine. Their peak is probably late afternoon. Uh, yeah. yeah. So if, they, if they get their druthers, they'd rather just get up afternoon uh, for classes and such and spend their evenings uh, studying, working, or socializing. That's just very common. a and has not had a history of online education in, in, in the large. They've had pieces of it. Uh, the Bush School, for example, a government public service had, has had a fairly robust graduate program that's online, uh, but they're strictly uh, graduate. Uh, the undergraduates here have traditionally, until very recently, been in a physical seat in a physical classroom with a physical person in front of them Uh, walking them through whatever material they're studying that day. That's been the norm here. And online education has been a pretty small thing. Uh, At Mizzou, where I was for a time, very different model there. Uh, They have a lot more online courses available. And the average student took at least one online course per semester, not because they had to, because they wanted to. They wanted the flexibility of scheduling. They wanted a a part-time job. They wanted to go to organizational meetings, things like that. They had things they wanted to do. And classes every day of the week got in the way of that. And they would manage their schedule by taking at least one online course per semester. That wasn't the culture here at Texas A&M. But I'm guessing as we go back to normal, whatever that is, we will have this memory going with us saying, Hey, I like the idea of being able to stay in bed uh, uh, in Thursday mornings, not go to my class at nine o'clock and do my class right there online. I suspect that's going to become a difficult thing to get away from once we've now experienced it during this time.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. This hybrid learning sort of thing that'll, that'll stay around uh, because of its flexibility. It's interesting to see how education is going to move forward with technology because I'm assuming this is only the beginning, right? The Zooms. Of this. It has to be. I mean,
1: again, we've been doing it a long time. I've done it for a long time. But the majority of faculty don't do it, haven't done it, until yeah. they've been forced into it. Uh, without a lot of preparation sometimes and it probably shows in the quality of what's there but uh, they'll get better at it they'll, they'll yep. figure it out uh, yep. and so I don't see this going away I think it'll, it'll it'll change from the moment we're at right now but I suspect much more balance will exist at every school including Texas A&M between online uh, and in-person learning that's just going to be a, a fact of, of how we do education going forward and it's 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 in many respects I mean again you have the time then to manage differently you can have a part-time job uh, during the day if you want to because you've got the online class you can get to when you're not working uh, you sure. or three clubs or three organizations and do things like exactly that. Uh, the athletes have been doing it for quite a while soon athletes who travel to games things like that are familiar with online education because they no choice sometimes but to do it and uh, you know they're certainly able to compete right now because they're isolating themselves in many many cases from uh, their normal friends and, and haunts, and by doing so uh, uh, are being you know forced to use the online resources they've had before. This isn't different for them in many respects. I'm sure they missed their friends and things like that, but but uh, hopefully that part will will come back again because I think you know going to going to a college or university is not just going to class. Uh, it's learning about life, uh, It's meeting perhaps a, a life partner. Uh, a lot of lessons learned when you're at a place like this between 18 and 22 years of age, but you don't necessarily get at home or in the workplace by itself. And so I think uh, coming to a place will not go away. Uh, universities like this will continue to have a, have a place to be, but it'll be a little bit different uh, in the future than it's been in the past for many of us like Texas a and
0: yeah, absolutely. But, you know, you you mentioned a lot of positive things, you know, which which is kind of good. You know, so, some of these, honestly, some of these resources just by doing online learning and video conferencing, and th- those are tools to use in the business world because the business world uses that stuff all day long. So if you sort of avoid that, it kind of wouldn't make sense. Uh, they're absolutely going to be prepared moving in. Right, it's just another aspect of well, it.
1: WFN, will stay around. I mean, work from home will not go away. I mean, so many companies, Feel realizing that their employees are as productive, maybe more productive yeah, or at home than they were at the office. Uh, you yeah. miss things. Uh, dynamics may be missing there. Some of the interaction you're used to having there and not everybody can do it as well as others can do it. So I think there'll be a mix of that. But I believe companies will have a hard time uh, putting this genie back in the bottle again once it's gotten out. Uh, the downside is you've got you know, two seven-year-olds running around the house here. These twins are distracting, it'll be a problem for you. Uh son who lives uh, near Denver uh, and works for a, a big company there is working from home mostly with uh, a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. And that's a challenging moment there <laughs> for him to keep his focus on his job and his meetings and such that are Zoom-based or based on some of the technology. And, uh, and if the kids are running around wanting some attention right now, that's a hard thing. Many parents aren't equipped to be homeschoolers. They just really aren't. Uh, my daughter has done that. She lives in Alaska. Uh, she's homeschooled almost all of her kids for most of their of their schooling time, and she has five of them. Uh, she's a trained educator. She has degrees in education. She's used to teaching, uh, and she's a homeschooler right now, which is now a much more common thing than we had before. And, again, some people are able to do that well. Some aren't so much, and figure that out over time. And I suspect we'll see homeschooling uh, – which has always been around now grow in a permanent way to a larger percentage of our population.
0: That might be a good thing, in, in fact, uh, in, in a lot of ways, it's going to probably put some relief on schools, which now funding can be used in different ways. I wonder if there'll be some sort of tax credit if you homeschool, so you, so, <laughs> so you get. We will,
1: we'll see. I. It's it's rare to see it go the other way. We'll, we'll have to see how that works out.
0: I mean, if you're paying taxes for the public school and you're like, you know, what, I'm going to put my kids at home, maybe you get a little cut, a little check, a little something, you know, I don't have kids. Look, I'm always like, look, I pay for schools. I don't even have kids. I don't even use these schools, but I pay the taxes because I know these kids are right there. They're going to go out into the world. They're going to be, I'm all about education, even if it's not my own. Uh, You know, I personally missed out on the university experience, you know, hearing you talk about that experience, whatever it kind of, you know, not that it's, it hasn't hit me before, but it's kind of like, you know, I kind of missed out on that a little bit. I did other things. I've traveled. I've lived in other countries. I mean, I've done other things, have my own experiences, but in a lot of ways, uh, sometimes I do kind of regret not not taking uh, that experience back, back you know, back then in my in my life. I was just, I couldn't, as we say in Spanish, quieto. I couldn't stay quieto. I couldn't stay still. I So I knew if I went to school, I wasn't going to, I knew the money would go to waste. I knew it wouldn't. I would probably drop out, and maybe I was wrong thinking,
1: you know, that way. It's interesting. I don't think you were. I mean, we're all different. Okay, we're all different. Uh, Is that period of your life from 18 to 22 is a pretty interesting part of your life there. I mean, you want independence. Uh, You want to be out of the house probably, and on your own to some extent. Uh, But you also have a very strong desire for socialization in most cases. You want to be with people sort of your age. Uh, part of your, you know, your you're part of the world. And that's an important part of growth right there is learning to, to relate to people, to be able to see differences in people. If you come from a small town in this country, you might not see people much different than you till you get to college. That's a very, very real possibility. Uh, and so it's a place where you begin to appreciate that we're all different and there's, and there's things that you can learn from each other that maybe you couldn't get in a very homogeneous population where you grew up. Those like you who are urbanites who grew up in a big city, that's somewhat different. Uh, but my point is, everyone is different. Everyone has their own unique styles and needs. And they, giving, given the ability to figure it out, it's an important thing. You want to be able to, to explore yourself and, and learn how you fit into the world. You did it your way. I did it my way. It's, that's okay. No, no
0: yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you can't have everything, right? You look back, you're like, I can't do everything, you know, because at that time, I had a lot of great experiences in that point in my life. It's not like I wasn't doing anything. I was doing stuff. So, you know, um, I never felt any pressure from my parents or anything. Um, they were always just, you know, do what you want as long as you're not hurting anybody in the world and you're making a living and you're working and, you know, you're doing something, you're, you're giving back uh, in some way. Um, so, yeah, there that, that was no issue there. I did go to a, a trade school for broadcasting to learn how to uh, broadcast for a year, uh, which which I did get that experience, you know, of being with people and uh, hanging out and, and that sort of thing, but definitely not a campus sort of, but I would, go, I would still go to these campuses, which I think a lot of people my age did back then, which is all my friends still go to school, right? So I would go to UNT or you go to SMU or, makes sense. You know, so you're still hanging out and getting some of the stuff, but it's more the extracurricular stuff you know hearing people talk about their classes also made me like damn I definitely don't want to go to school like uh, I love learning but I don't know I just you know it's just a different type of person but yeah that's interesting uh how it is um you know you mentioned about you know maintaining or going to school is is being part of you know Seeing other things, seeing other cultures, meeting other people, right? Just getting a different experience. All of a sudden, it just your vision is is widened in a way, if we if we want to say a perspective. And, and I find that fascinating because I do feel that that's a big uh, important part of life. And I'm curious if you think. And I'm and I mentioned A and M specifically because you have so you know much experience there. Um, how do you feel A and M is handled? Sort of, you know. I don't know, racial tensions and things like, you know, is it gotten better? Are things bad there? Is there, because there's this whole argument, right, of racism and systemic racism. I know you have a little bit of background in that. I'm not trying to get too much into that. Uh, oh, it's okay. It's okay. Uh,
1: I'm curious. I don't know all the elements of what's going on right now. Uh, during my time as president here, uh, we had some issues arise. Uh, that's sure. just uh, of a large campus like this. Uh, be aware that Texas A&M's population of students is about 4% African-American. Uh, UT Austin's is about double that. So there's a difference right there immediately. Uh, the Latino population here is, is much larger. Uh, my last year as president, a quarter, 25% of our entering class of freshmen uh, were Latinos. Uh, you know, that's, that's different than it used to be, but it is uh, a fact. And so, if you walk this campus, uh, uh, being black, you're going to be seeing not that many like you. If you walk this campus and your last name is Garcia Hernandez, uh, you'll see many people like you <laughs> with your with the same last names. That's just the way it's going to be. So it's a different you know situation depending on where you're coming from. Uh, during my time, uh, we didn't have uh, any major racial protests uh, here. They focused initially on a statue on the campus. Lawrence Sullivan Ross. Uh, Ross was uh, president of the university a long time ago. That's why that statue is here. He was also a Confederate officer. And so that's why the protests have occurred. Uh, so again, you have the situation. I encountered the same kind of problem uh, when I was at Missouri as chancellor. Uh, yeah. There's a statue of Thomas Jefferson in the middle of that campus. And, and I had uh, students come to me and say, this statue offends me uh, because he owned slaves. So he, slaves, whatever they might have said about it. And I dealt with that. Uh, the statue is still there, uh, but we had a lot of dialogue about it during my, my time as chancellor. It's come back again this, this past year. There's been a lot of uh, protests about that statue being there again. So you're going you're gonna to find those kinds of things. On this campus, besides that statue, there are other things. There's, there's buildings named for people uh, that lived at the time of the Civil War. Uh, There are street names. There are things like that. There are many elements of the campus that have been here for a very long time. But if you dig deep enough, uh, you will find possibly some reasons to to object to it. And that's what some people have been able to do. Uh, So far as I can tell, nothing's really changed uh, yet. There is a a pretty large, about 40-person committee that the current president has appointed to look at these issues. Uh, They're going to report back probably in another month or two. We'll see what they say about things then. Uh, but right now, uh, nothing's really changed very much. Uh, the legislature may be getting involved. The Attorney General of Texas issued a, a ruling recently that the statute was placed there by the legislature, not by the university. And therefore, the legislature controls whether it stays or goes. Oh,
0: wow.
1: AG says right now. Yeah. If that holds up legally, then it would not be a decision of the university president or the university board of regions, It'd be a decision made in Austin uh, by our legislature. So I can't predict that, but uh, right now, you know, things are what they are. Uh, I would say at the moment, what's crystallizing things here is football. Uh, We're looking at the first game being played here in the fall season, a week from Saturday, and uh, football is a pretty big deal at Texas A&M, at many schools like us. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, in Texas. People's thoughts are going that direction right now. Uh, Sure and some of the things that were in place uh, in the late summer and early fall uh, as school began to start up.
0: Yeah there's a game at UT as well and I, but I also see there's some uh, you know I honestly I'll be I'll be frank I, I really have no opinion one way or the other um, but I see everyone's perspective but there's some controversy about having these games and people are a little outrage that, you know, why have the games? We've all been staying at home. How are we going to get all these groups together? How do you feel about that? Do you think we should get back to the games? What, what are the sort of the, the pros and cons of that?
1: Well, there's only risks. Uh, I think that the way the teams are managed can be very positive. Uh, some schools have had a fair number of cases. Some have not. Uh, LSU's coach recently announced that most of his players either had the Covid nineteen virus or uh, or had had it uh, that's a pretty big big deal uh, but again uh, I think you can manage it within the framework of a team if you take precautions and if in particular the team members are actually responsible people who won't go out uh, and socialize uh, in sure. ways that uh, you know exacerbates the potential or the probability.
0: The stands that people easier. hear about. It's going to be the fans. I
1: mean, the... Fans, exactly. The stadium will be at 25%. Uh, they're going to require mask wearing during uh, entrance, egress, as well as during the game itself. Uh, we will see uh, what happens after that. Uh, yep. In the local area where I live right now, uh, cases were trending down quite a bit till the students got back. Then they've, they've spiked up again. Uh, they're trending down again right now. So I think there's been... There's some mitigation done to try to reduce the risks here. Uh, But the reported cases each day are largely college-age students. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about people from 18 and 24 years of age being the predominant folks who are getting infected right now in the local area I live in. And that's just almost due to the university reopening itself.
0: Sure. Uh,
1: But again, uh, the way it works, I think, will be interesting. Uh, They prohibited tailgating, which is pretty a uh, pretty big deal for this place. It's a big tailgating school. Uh, yeah, so is UT the tailgates here. Tailgates will be handled, be handled this particular time. They may change that later on. Uh, the big news, of course, is the Big Ten has announced. They're going to resume uh, their season in October. Uh, that was surprising to me in a way. I know a lot of those presidents and chancellors in the Big Ten. And in the pack, I wasn't surprised. Those schools made those choices not to have a season uh, this year. Uh, but now the Big Ten is bound to the obvious pressure uh, from uh, many of the alumni of those schools in that conference to, to resume uh, that, resume that season. Now, and, and we'll see what happens with that. Uh, I do think that we've learned a lot from the NBA, uh, NFL, and Major League Baseball about how to manage this well. The real problem is going to be the, the stands. Uh, in yeah. the NBA and MLB, you have nobody in the stands. okay, but cardboard. And so that won't be the case here at Texas A&M or at UT Austin. And so we'll have to see, exactly what that means over time. I'm guessing a couple of weeks after the first game we'll know more, and we know right now about that. And so we could see things change. I just don't know uh, what the answer will be. I think it is manageable uh, if you really want to take a, a fairly strict view of how to do things, uh, especially among the teams. And that makes it you know at least palatable to be able to do this. Uh, but even there, some students are opting not to play uh, because they worry about uh, the disease. Uh, they're relatively at low risk of, of 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 any permanent problems with it, but some have died, some have gotten very sick. That's that's very demonstrable. So we'll have to see what goes on here. I'm not luckily in a place where I make those decisions anymore.
0: Sure, I understand. <laughs> I understand. Yeah, but I'm curious. <laughs> Because like I said, um, you know, I, I see everybody's perspective and, uh, you know, I try to stay out of things I just don't know much about. Yeah, I'm not an expert about and, I, you know, I see everyone's perspective about wanting to get things back up and running as well. I, I Gosh, it, it, you know, it pains me. Um, so I see that as well, but also see that we have to be cautious. I think it's a, a balance, right? A hybrid, like we were talking earlier. I just think it's a good balance. Right that we'll, we'll see what happens and, and how that moves forward. Um, well, one thing I do want to talk about, you were bringing up, um, you know, uh, I, I actually didn't know too much, um, about you before this interview, to be honest with you. So I did a lot of research on, you know, really oh, no. <laughs> deep. I do that for every guest. Uh, that that's part, you know, that's my job. Uh, I, I enjoy it. That's my favorite part of the job is learning about, uh, people and then getting excited about, you know, wanting to talk to them. Um, so, you know, I'm looking at some of this stuff with, that happened up in Missouri. My, my father's from Missouri, uh, from St. Louis. Uh, so I got a lot of family there, you know, a lot of, lot of connections there, uh, but I don't really know too much about it. I don't really go there, you know, don't really know too much about it, but I just thought, okay, th- this sort of hits close to home. And uh, and I remember the news when a lot of this was happening, but, you know, I, what I'm curious about, and and my question is this, it's a little long-winded question, but so... At, Everything that happened in Ferguson, they say, right, so this led to some protests there at the school because, you know, these are people that grew up in that area as well, and now they're, they're students here. And I'm curious if, you know, so they're saying there's a, this systemic racism on campus, and, again, I don't have this university experience, so I don't really know, but I, I did see some isolated incident, incidents. So, okay, that that actually happened. But was there actually something really there is, you know, and do you really feel that, you know, everything that happened with Ferguson, had that not maybe happened, you know, would have brought that attention to the school and, you know, your decision to step down, which I feel, honestly, I felt a little sad about that. I just thought, God, that, that stinks like that you have to step down and, you know, I just feel like you got caught up in something, um, you know, this whirlwind of stuff and, and, you know, just curious your thoughts on that.
1: Well, uh, I was basically collateral damage. If you want to call it that, uh, the, the problem is basically, uh, that was a pretty local story, uh, in Missouri until the football team decided to publicly announce their intention to, to strike unless my boss stepped down. Yeah. And he did so within a couple of days of that. So, uh, that's what really happened. Uh, you know, my departure from the chancellorship was not connected to the racial uh, discussions on campus at the time directly at all. Uh, that's something you would know if you were locally there. Sure. Uh, see that in the natural media and the things you probably saw when you Googled, Googled my name out there. Uh, but the, what really, uh, I'll say this, uh, Ferguson was a catalyst and it wasn't just Ferguson itself. Uh, what was more telling was the... Uh, day in which the grand jury decision not to indict the police officer that shot uh, Michael Brown. When that was announced, that really was uh, the beginning, if you will, of, of, of much uh, conversation and much anxiety on the campus in Columbia, Missouri, which is about a couple hours drive from, from St. Louis and Ferguson where it happened. So I would say Ferguson was a catalyst. There were some students, not many, but some students at the campus from Ferguson Uh, many more new people from Ferguson, Uh, and there were some, there were some, and and Ferguson happened during the summer, so we had a much lower population of students there. The grand jury announcement happened the Monday of Thanksgiving week uh, when students were already gone. It was a total week off for them, and so they weren't there. Uh, So what we arranged was a series of conversations with our students uh, a week following the announcement uh, in November of 2014 of the grand jury results. And that's really what started a whole series of conversations and meetings all through the rest of that year and the first half of of 2015. Uh, The real sort of national news came about because a man named Jonathan Butler, uh, who organized a small group of students called Concerned Student 1950. And uh, they presented me uh, and others with a list of, of demands, requirements that they wanted us to meet, and we met often, we talked a lot, we worked through those, uh, those things they had listed and talked about what could be done, what couldn't be done. And, and the, the only thing that I differed with them on, basically, uh, was the time frame. For example, one uh, demand was that we have uh, 10% of the faculty being African-American. Well, in some departments, it was more than that. In many, it was much less than that, and uh, some of zero. The problem is to get a PhD in an area where you can be qualified to be a, a faculty member of a university like that, uh, takes a while. Uh, if you ask the question how many African Americans have a PhD uh, in a given year in physics or chemistry, the answer is not very many. And by the way, many universities want them. And so uh, the ability to grow your faculty quickly uh, just wasn't there in a lot of areas. And they understood that, but, of course, students want things to change during their lifetime, their four years on campus, and that was what the problem was. The other issue we really couldn't address immediately was, was curriculum. They wanted courses in place that would, that would help educate all students uh, about their backgrounds and, and, and their histories and their, their concerns, and uh, I had no real issue with that, but the faculty owned the curriculum, not the chancellor, uh, so I couldn't do that. Uh, but what happened is they they turned their attention from me to my boss, the, the system head, and ultimately he was the focus for their attention. And ultimately he was forced to resign. And, and I left for really other reasons. If you want to dig into it more deeply than that, uh, but nonetheless, it was it was a uh, it was timing that made that made that appear to be the case. And that's what it is. Uh, no regrets about that. I did what I could do, yeah. in circumstances. Uh, at some point, I wasn't allowed to anymore, and that's that's where things went south. Really, uh, is when person above me who was less experienced in the in university settings than I was uh, just didn't really know how to handle that sort of situation. Uh, but again the catalyst was Ferguson in a way back in 2014. Uh, a year later uh, roughly we had this uh, this problem in the zoo with the football team which got national attention and otherwise it had been a local story that you probably wouldn't have heard about much.
0: yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's absolutely true. Well, it's you know it's it, absolutely believable that the lens would be blurred uh, from local to national, uh, right? The the news that you get there's always more to the story uh, th- than what you get uh, nationally, um, you know, which doesn't surprise me at all. Um, yeah, it sounds like definitely just collateral damage, uh, which which stinks. I'm glad some changes were made. Hopefully, positive changes. But um, yeah, there were
1: changes made, and again. Uh, if you go there today, you'd find that uh, the students I dealt with are all gone. <laughs> yeah. uh, you're there today who are concerned about uh, the current circumstance, have some of the same uh, you know, issues that we had back in, in 2014 and 2015, uh, we'll see what happens. I don't know that much will change necessarily very quickly. Uh, we made some changes. Well, we could make changes rapidly uh, back in my time. Uh, I think it has been some progress being made, but I'd be very surprised if, if things were uh, all totally perfect today compared to what they were back in, when I was there. I'd be very surprised about that. It's not something easy. I, as I've told people many times, uh, you can do many things, but you can't change hearts. And, and that's what it comes down to, is changing hearts. Uh, uh, I think that you know, given long periods of time, this can happen. Uh, but you don't really mandate uh, that your heart be changed. And, and that's what difficult, difficulties exist when you're trying to make changes rapidly uh, in a place like, uh, like Missouri or Texas a or anywhere else uh, in the world. For that matter.
0: Sure. No, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm sure you've thought about this, you know, several times and probably had conversations, but in retrospect, you know, looking back on that situation, um, you know, would you do something differently? Would you have done something differently?
1: Not, not I, I mean, really I, I did what I thought was right. If you talk to the students who were there at the time, I think they would agree that that I was open uh, to conversations with them, open to uh, addressing things that could be dealt with. Uh, at that level. And I try to get others engaged with that process as well as appropriate. Uh, what really took place was the uh, you know the, the person who was my immediate superior deciding that he wanted to be in charge. Uh, he could do better than me, and he said, you know, basically step aside, and I did. Uh, and so that's where we work. And uh, there's plenty of things out there. There's a, an interesting YouTube you can find, uh, well over a million views uh, of him being confronted by the students uh, outside of a, a venue in Kansas City after he'd gone to a fundraiser there. And uh, and he was asked by these students to define uh, systemic racism. And uh, he didn't do too well with that. You can judge for yourself. <laughs> My point is, he he wasn't a bad person, exactly. He just didn't know what he was doing. He was uh, an IBM uh, sales executive during most much of his career. Uh, he had no graduate education at all, and so he was uh, put in a place where he was managing a four-campus system, uh, and that wasn't a good place for him to be, probably.
0: Yeah, that sounds... Uh... You know, sometimes you're just in, yeah, like you said, over your head. You just don't, not a bad person just doesn't know, have experience with that. Who do you think, I mean, how do you find that right person as a university? Is it, it's got to be- It's very
1: difficult these days. Ah. Uh, I just, if you look at the press, you'll find that uh, virtually every university president uh, is is criticized pretty often. Michigan's president is in deep doo-doo right now, for example. Uh, That's in the news yesterday, today. Uh, it, it's just a difficult place to be. And understand this, that, that the expectations are so different now than they once were.
0: Sure.
1: The of, of smartphones that capture audio uh, and video are it just it's huge. And, and so consequently, every single thing you say, do, uh, is captured potentially by someone else. And that can either be put out like it is, or it can be manipulated a bit to only parts of what happened and that's okay i mean I, I don't object to that but it just it gives you a different kind of, of world to interact with and deal with than people had even just a decade ago uh, so yeah. things have changed radically over that time if you look at my background you'll find that i'm one of the few university leaders who actually embrace social media uh and that was you know, a mix, mixed blessing uh i had a hacked a few times things like that it got me in some in some uh in some hot water, but that's what it's, what's about. I use that though very deliberately as a way to keep track of what was going on in the minds of my students. I could spend a couple hours a day on the timeline and see what was happening on the campus in ways that nobody else, in administration did. Uh, I probably dialogued with at least a hundred students a day individually through DMs and other, other means in social media to answer questions, uh, provide them with some feedback uh, on on issues they had, Uh, but I also listened a lot that way. I spent a couple hours a day, every day, just looking at what students were saying about their campus, their university, Uh, and that was very telling, very interesting. Uh, You don't get that uh, kind of honest, unfiltered sort of uh, feedback any other way. Uh, If they come to the office, they're going to be filtering somewhat what they say to you. Even those who are there to protest, they're going to be filtering what they say to you. Uh, but when they put it on social media, it's usually pretty raw. And uh, when you look at that, you can really learn a lot about what's in the minds of these students uh, pretty efficiently. I did that here at Texas a and I did that at Missouri. And that's really how I interacted with the students a lot. Uh, it's very difficult for a university leader to place as big as A&M or Missouri to be able to really get to know students well. It's just, it's just some big place, so much to do. My, my days were 14, 15 hours long. Uh, and that was seven days a week. I mean, there was just no break uh, for years and years and years. And yeah. that kind of schedule, you have a hard time really being reflective and learning much. And so I used a couple hours a day just to learn privately about what was going on on the campus there and, and use that to make decisions with, to actually, uh, Uh, affect change in many cases. And that's something that's pretty rare even today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's got to be absolutely like a minefield, like walking through a minefield, trying to, you know, work social media at that time. Um, You know, I'm curious why no no one else, right, was at that time, or when you started doing that, was thinking, oh, yeah, this is absolutely to get the, you know, the finger on the pulse of what the students are actually thinking and, and what's happening. Right, I mean, are more. I wasn't useful. the only person.
1: There, there were a handful of us. The uh, University of Cincinnati president at the time was was quite, uh, I think, quite a presence on social media. Was uh, others were there? Were a handful of us. There was a young man up in Canada who did a, a master's thesis on this very topic and then turned it into a book. So there's a book out there which is now a little dated, but it really documents uh, probably 20 of us around the country, uh, Canada book that all. were. Pretty active social media users uh, during their presidencies. And he was trying to use that book as a way of educating others who might want to do this about the pros and cons of it uh, and some of the techniques you might want to employ. So there's some stuff out there. People, I'm not the only person, but again, nobody at a place as big as A&M or Missouri uh, to my knowledge, has done that much of it. I'd say the only real comparable person would be uh, the uh, Santos, at, at who was then at Cincinnati, he's elsewhere now, but he was there at a particular time, and uh, others were at smaller schools, typically. But again, uh, it's a two-edged sword. You can, you can hurt yourself uh, by using it inappropriately. You can also help yourself and help your university by using it appropriately, and uh, it's hard to learn that without uh, getting burned a little bit occasionally. <laughs>
0: Oh, I can't, I, uh, you know, I can't imagine uh, the pressures there for sure. Um, Are you still, uh, do you ever do anything uh, with the Missouri uh, anymore or are you still? Very very little. I
1: I retired officially from there back uh, in the last summer, summer of 2019. Uh, Moved back here. I have some good friends there. I was on line one today. I I do talk to people. I keep in touch with people there. I kind of follow what's going on there, but I don't have any real official involvement. I really retired from Yeah, Yeah. Uh, we always want to be back here. A&M was—it's more much more sort of a home to me than, than Missouri was, uh, given my roots here and my and, and in fact Texas is where I, I'm from. Uh, many divisions along one line anyway, and so uh, this is the place I wanted to be. A lot of friends here have been friends for a very long time, and uh, we're just blessed to be among among those who have, I think, uh, a love for the institution I have, and and really uh, enjoy. But being here and also enjoy this company from time to time as well. Hopefully, more as we get through the COVID problem than we've been able to the last several months anyway.
0: (laughs) Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Well, listen, um, I I have absolutely enjoyed uh, this conversation and I really just appreciate your candidness and openness. I love just having, you know, these conversations about stuff. I love just talking to people about, you know, uh, you know, anything really. Uh, But this was absolutely um, fascinating to, to be honest with you. I know our listeners are going to be, uh, thrilled with this episode. Um, I've learned a lot. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, I learned a lot for sure. And, and when I learn something, I know our listeners learn. <laughs> uh, that, that's, uh, oh, that's I'm just, just disappointed we didn't get around
1: talking about food. But that's, <laughs>
0: that's <pretty> bad, <laughs> it happens. It, it happens sometimes. We can talk quickly about food. What? What? Uh, what we'll, we'll dedicate a couple minutes here. Um, quickly tell us what what kind of food are you? Are you a vegan or a vegetarian? These are hot things right now. Are you on the keto diet? Uh, I'm
1: I'm the uh, son of a a cattle rancher, okay? So that should tell you something right there. (laughs) I grew up with with, with beef, largely. A bit of pork and poultry, too, but mostly with beef. Uh, uh, For years and years, I had no time to cook. My mother was a great Southern cook. Uh, She trained me a bit when I was at home in high school and be prepared to go out on my own someday, and and I did that for a while. And then uh, after I got married, we had kids. It was more complicated, and then I got jobs just, took me away a lot and kept me busy a lot, so it, it was much less. Once I retired uh, back in, in, uh, in 2015, I was able to kind of return to the kitchen again and get back into the, in the cooking mode. I've also joined a cult. Uh, it's called the Big Green Egg Cult. So I do have a big green egg out back here that I use all the smoking and, and, uh, and grilling on. I enjoy that a lot, learning to use that. It's kind of an interesting experience, and, and, uh, and you work a lot, and you also make some mistakes occasionally. But I'm the cook here. My wife's never liked to cook very much. And so even though she can do it, I, uh, so I'm, I'm the chef and uh, having, having people over tonight, for example, so I'm doing some, uh, some teriyaki chicken tonight for us to share together. But I have about probably 40 or 50 dishes that I do routinely. And maybe once or a week or two, I'll bring something new into the repertoire then and again, uh, the last several months since I bought a big green egg, I've been really learning to use it. There is a really a cult out there. There's a lot of social media groups about the egg. And I have several friends here and classmates in town near me who have one. And so we have a lot of shared information flowing back and forth about what worked and didn't work. So it's a it's a little culture and a cult there. You can enjoy yourself. Uh, but I have found that cooking is like mowing a lawn. You, you do something which is useful. You actually can see, uh, and in fact, this says eat, uh, the results of your labor. Uh, many jobs I've had, it was hard to see the results. I mean, It was hard to see a tangible outcome of it. Uh, you mow a yard, though, you can see where you've been. You can see the grass cut, okay? Yeah. Uh, cook a meal and eat it. <laughs> it's tangible, and that's hard to beat. Uh, I think people have an innate desire to do things that have some degree of impact that do, in fact, influence yourself personally, those around you, and food is part of our lives. Whether you're a vegan uh, or a keto person, doesn't matter, you're gonna have to eat, okay? Uh, It's it's ubiquitous, and and that is an opportunity uh, for you to, in my case, learn, experiment, uh, and discuss. Just have a good time socially uh, dealing with the cooking process itself and sharing your stories and your ideas the thing we do is a story. As you probably know, you're a storyteller. I'm a storyteller. Uh, stories are how people learn, how we communicate, how we remember things. Uh, and stories about food are many. <laughs> and you probably heard many in your, in your career and in this, in this podcast anyway.
0: Well, I'm a chef to be honest. You know, I've been doing the podcast, I guess uh, we we launched in January, uh but you know, I've been in the restaurant industry for 15 years. Yeah, food's a big part of my life and um I'm all I'm, I'm I agree with that 100% of everything you just said. Like I and I'm happy you just said all of that to be honest with you. That's a great attitude and I think a lot more people are missing uh what food is and getting around food and joining around food. And you have the best conversations at a meal, right? You, you dig in, you dig deep. We're missing some of that. I don't have kids anything, or anything or have that sort of, you know, family time, if you will, to sit around. But I still enjoy those moments, right, with family and sitting around with friends or whatever. And I think, you know, we, meet, we need more of that, especially this day and age. And cooking, getting with people, telling stories. Your food tells a story. You can tell a story. There's just so much – you can learn from a meal, cooking it, you know, going through it, and yeah, I'm a big promoter of that on this podcast all the time. I'm I'm always telling people to cook, get their kitchen re- reset up so they can cook more. Uh, you know, the 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 actual uh, you know actions they can take to to actually start cooking more because you can tell people to cook more all day long and the benefits of it, but if you don't show them actionable ways uh, to make it happen, they're just not. Uh, gonna do it. So I do it all the time. Don't bring me, I'm the worst guy to bring in your kitchen because I'll immediately <laughs> say, move this here, bring this here. I'm- okay.
1: <laughs> I understand exactly. Uh, over my left shoulder here, you'll see my, my wine cellar, by the way. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, love it. Love me. So- Wine, uh, for sure wow okay yeah that 's a whole nother podcast for me there i'm a big I love wine love drinking wine i love
1: yeah, i 'm not an expert but i 've learned as much as I can. I have great friends who are, and I just enjoy talking about wine as well
0: yeah absolutely it's just about you crack it open, you just start talking, and that 's how you learn nobody's better than anybody else i've worked with i've looked i 've literally worked with master psalms, second level psalms. Third level psalms. I've worked in wineries. I've been through wineries in Spain. It's the real deal. Wine is, look, it's it's really it's a grape. Okay, we we squish it. You drink it. There's really not much to it. it what you can really get out of it is like the meal, the conversation you'll have around drinking that wine and bring it. The, the wine. Op- right. It's, it's a very
1: social experience. To have a glass of wine with somebody. That's one of my favorite things to do. Is sit down at the end of the day with a glass of wine in my hand and with a friend with a glass of wine in their hand. And we'll just talk about the day. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's incredible how that all fits together in a very perfect way.
0: I a hundred percent agree. That's, and that's a great way to end uh, the podcast there, man. That's just a great, great way. Well, you know, again, I really appreciate your candidness. you you have such a great heart and, uh, this was such a great conversation, and hopefully one day, maybe we will get to have a glass of wine when all this, you know, clears up and everything and and have a meal. That was originally how we did this podcast, by the way, was we had a meal. We would do, we would literally eat and talk, and, and it was great. The first, it was just awesome, but the pandemic hit, and I just put a stop to, <laughs> to all that, so hopefully we'll get back to that. It one. Was a, it was
1: a dry spell there, and I've enjoyed getting back to my favorite restaurants again. Uh, That's good. Sorry, That's I've got good. one just on the road from here. That sells Jordan at half price on, on Tuesday nights. So I'm there on Tuesday nights quite often.
0: <laughs> uh, I'd be there too. That's a great <laughs> wine. Uh, absolutely. And look, get out there, support the local restaurant, support the, you know, they, they need it. We My people need it right now. We, we need all this. Amen support. to that.
1: Amen to that, sir.
0: Yeah. So uh, yeah.
1: I've been, felt so bad for those who've gone under. I have many friends in the restaurant business gone under over the last several months. And it's just a shame. We've lost a lot of diversity of yeah. food and of Experiences. Uh, yeah. by not those restaurants be able to sustain themselves through this mess. So I, I hope they can recover. I fear that many won't, though. Unfortunately, we'll see.
0: Yeah, a lot of them have already closed, especially here in Austin. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, for the ones that are still going, get out there and support them because yeah, we don't need to lose more. When you lose a restaurant like that, there's culture. There's it's a staple. It's it's a uh, it's more than just the food and what it provide provided memories. It provided just so much, um, you know, restaurants and, and places like that just become a part of the city and uh, to see them go down is, is a shame. Uh, so for sure. So for what's still standing, get out there and support it. Uh, love to hear that. Uh, but again, uh, thank. think. Oh, before we go, let us know uh, our listeners and everybody. Let us know how they can connect with you online.
1: I've got a problem. My, my email address. I have several emails, about, by the way. Uh, probably the easiest one is one of my private emails. Uh, it's my name, Bowen dot lofton b o w e n dot l-o f t i n at Yahoo dot com. That's probably a good address to use to get to me. Happy to have a conversation uh by email or text or whatever makes sense to somebody. But a starting point would be just sending me an email note. We can connect and anybody who wants to follow through on any questions or comments they might have about my my uh presence today on your show.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. What about social media? What about your social media stuff?
1: Uh I have several. Um, Again, I have two, three Twitter accounts, actually. The one I use the most is at Aggie Prez, uh, A-G-G-I-E-P-R-E-Z. That's my Twitter handle, my most used account there. Uh, Facebook, uh, I have a fan page, which I don't like to use much. My personal page is always filled at 5,000 friends, so it doesn't do much good there, but (laughs) message me if you want to. Uh, Instagram, it's also at Aggie Prez on Instagram as well. Uh, those are the primary things I use. LinkedIn probably isn't that common among your audience, but I have a LinkedIn account as well.
0: Awesome. That's great. Well, um, listen, again, thank you so much uh for your time. Uh let you get back to whatever uh you got to do. And you gotta cook dinner right now. <laughs> boom. That's a, look at that. Get 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 to work. Get to work. where your wife's like, hey, listen, get off that podcast. I'm I'm free. Right? said. I
1: have time. I have time. <laughs>
0: take your time uh nothing don't rush on meal uh well again uh thank you so much for your time my best to you and your family and you know to to y'all safety uh during this time and um again thank you so much really appreciate thank it. you appreciate it all right Bye. the lone star plate podcast is produced by texas real food go to texasrealfood.com and you can search your city for stores butchers restaurants farmers markets and more we're using fresh artisanal organic sources it's a fun site that brings all natural options all together i hope you enjoyed this episode for more information go to thelonestarplay.com i'm your host patrick scott armstrong until next time